Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Kane, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the CBS all-access series, The Stand... (laughs) Episode 7, The Walk. Let's start the show. Trash Can Man finds a nuclear warhead. Harold and Nadine leave Boulder, but Harold doesn't make it to Vegas. Nadine and Flag finally meet. Mother Abigail sends Stu, Larry, Ray, and Glenn out west before dying. Along the way, Stu falls and is left behind. The other three are picked up by Lloyd and brought to New Vegas where they are greeted by a very pregnant Nadine. Jay, I found this episode to be very much by the numbers. If you've read the book, this seemed to be an episode that followed and hewed fairly closely to the events that you would expect to see in this episode. I would agree, almost to the point that it kind of made the episode less interesting, because I knew exactly what was going to happen. And I don't know that I can fault the show directly for that, Like, oh, they were too loyal to the source material. How dare they? Right. So I definitely shouldn't complain that they're, you know, just following the (laughs) the setup that King left them. Agreed. I think that this was an episode that didn't have any problems because it hewed pretty closely, but it also wasn't overly exciting. Although there were a few tiny changes along the way that I did think added some interest, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about those. But before that, we got a lot of listener feedback over the last week, Jay. Awesome. And I am excited to talk about it with you. Yeah. Right after we recorded last week, Ryan Flint tweeted us, pointing out a great thingy that we missed from episode six, and that is that the song In the Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson is playing when Flag descends in the elevator covered in blood. And that's just a fantastic musical cue that I totally missed. Because I was so focused on flag squishing boots in the blood, uh, uh-huh. but but that's great because there's so many references to the Dark Tower, to Crimson King, King Crimson, like just fantastic. So thanks for pointing that out, Ryan. That's one thing that I'll say about the show is that they they haven't been too heavy handed with Dark Tower connections. As much as I love Gerald's Game, it's a really great adaptation and and just a good movie. When Gerald says all things serve the beam, it's completely out of left field. Right. I'd prefer to have the nice, subtle references that this show is doing. They're not banging us over the head with them. They're not laying them out in every scene in every episode. So when they do something really subtle, like a song with the word Crimson King in it by a band with the words Crimson King in it, and then just letting it play as perfectly good music choice for the yep. moment, it all works. So good job, show. Yeah. And nice job, Ryan, pointing that out. Thanks. Yeah. We were also tweeted at by openly black Wonder Woman, her thoughts on New Vegas, which were simply, I hated it. Lloyd wasn't a buffoon and they didn't party and have orgies all over the place. There wasn't even anything stronger to drink than beer. They were terrified in Vegas. And I agree, like, they just didn't get that right. They tried to do that a little bit better in this current episode, I thought. You saw Mm. the crucifixions, you saw people getting beat up on the street and... People who weren't working hard uh, seem to get beat a little bit. But that first impression of New Vegas has really sort of 
put me and a lot of our viewers off of that presentation. Yeah, I totally agree with openly Black Wonder Woman on this one. And a big part of my problem with Vegas is to the extent that everybody in Vegas was afraid of Flag, they were truly afraid to let their guard down. They couldn't relax with something more inebriating than an occasional beer. Right. But even deeper than that, this representation of Vegas makes no sense. We've talked about it in previous episodes where Flag is so oppressive or the society that he has fostered here is so oppressive, no one would come and every, anybody who did would immediately leave. Yeah. Who's going to stick around for having to carve Flag's face into the statue of Caesar in front of <laughs> Caesar's palace? And if they don't work fast enough or if they stop to like wipe their brow, somebody beats them with a stick. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be out of there on the first day. This is ridiculous. Yeah. All right. We do have somebody named The Walking Dude, who we've heard from before, who liked episode six. I actually love this episode, The Walking Dude said. But at this point, my standard is much lower, and I'm only watching for the Harold Franny storyline and Tom. I couldn't really care less about Vegas, Flag Abigail, or any of the other characters, honestly. Uh, yeah. So maybe you, you might have loved this episode, but it doesn't sound like you really did, Walking Dude. And we'll talk, a little, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about those relationships a little bit later on in this episode. I think he says he likes it, but that's like grading on a curve. Yeah, definitely. A Jamie Sheridan curve. A mullet curve, if you will. <laughs> I was just going to say Jamie Sheridan doesn't have curves, but you reminded me of the mullet. Exactly. We heard from our constant listener, Liz, two different times via Twitter. First, she just said, they're killing me, man. <laughs> And then a little bit later, she said, as a possible thinny, that Tom leaving Vegas in a pile of corpses is the same way Roland left Jericho Hill. But then she kind of reminds herself that that might only be something from the graphic novel adaptation. And I think that's correct, Liz. There is no coverage of Jericho Hill in the Dark Tower books. We only hear of it after the fact. Yeah, and I don't think Roland mentions how he escapes in the books. I know that piece of knowledge, but I don't remember where I know it from. I have a feeling yeah. it's probably from the graphic novels. But yeah, definitely a nice thinny there. For sure. Another frequent listener is Public Defender 716 who tweeted, if the last episode is a coda, it doesn't seem like there's enough time left to get things done properly. Guess we'll see. And I think that that's something Jay and I noticed last week as well, that we're really running out of time here. But to be fair, this episode was very focused. And got everyone where they need to be, I think. Mm -hmm. Trash Can Man has a nuke. Our characters who are going to Vegas are in Vegas. Stu's waiting on Kojak to help him. So we've got the players where they need to be. So maybe everything will happen. It's just going to be slimmed down. Yeah, I mean, the show has established how rapidly it can move through the story. I'm not worried that they'll get to the end in time. What worries me is how they're going to skip so much to get there. Uh, we got another email from Sergio. He wrote us to say that Harold is the MVP of the series, and he doesn't know if they will keep his fate as it happened in the book, or change it to where he is in New Vegas with everyone, because not counting the new last chapter, an episode and a half without Harold will make this series tough to watch. I can't disagree with what you're saying there, Sergio. The writers seem to have decided to make Harold and Nadine effectively the stars of the story. Mm. And the episode that we just watched tells us the answer to your ponderings that, you know, Harold does not make it to Vegas. It, it does largely happen like in the book. 
which means that episode eight and episode nine are going to have no Harold. And even though you just said that Nadine was flushed out as we see her at the end of this episode, she's actually very not flushed out as she has become very cadaverous. Yes. I was going to say gaunt, but cadaverous is a much better adjective there. (laughs) All right. So that's a lot of feedback on episodes five and six. I wanted to call out a tweet we got from Little Bit Extra, who said one of the nicest things we've heard in a while, Jay, and that is any constant readers watching The Stand need to check out Two Guys Dark Tower. I just listened to them covering the first episode and I'm dying. I was literally laughing and saying yes to things they said. Awesome. And that is fantastic little bit. And I do know that there were a couple of people besides us who saw that tweet and liked and followed us. So hopefully you're listening as well. Thank you for the endorsement. And we continue to hope that uh, you enjoy our coverage. And we also heard from our friend Heathen King. He said, I really disliked episodes five and six, but this one was fairly decent, despite some cringeworthy moments. Yeah, I think that that's a fairly good summary of, of episode seven. Fairly decent. That's pretty much what I thought. An astute observation by Ethan King, as always. As always. So let's talk a little bit more about episode seven. And I think that potentially one of the main themes in this section is about the free will of the characters. We don't get the pages and pages of philosophizing that we get in the book. You know, Glenn Mm -hmm. has a tendency to philosophize with Stu on his way to Boulder and then on their way from Boulder to Vegas. They do that. We get a little bit of that here. And even beforehand, we get these characters questioning why they're doing what they're doing. And in what I thought was a nice little twist from the book, when we first see them leave, the four walkers sort of decide, hey, why are we doing this the way we're doing this? Like, why is this a rule that we can't have water? What should we do? And Jay, that was something you and I talked about. Like, Mm -hmm. why don't they just walk to the next town and pick up all the stuff they need? And they're like, yeah, why don't we do that? And, And Glenn talks a little bit about like, well, here's how we're going to do it, and here's why we're going to do it. And they make potentially an inappropriate joke about uh, Ray being Native American and her being able to find the water that, that would be clear and not make them sick. But like they got into the logistics of the stuff, which I was, I like. But yeah, all of this comes down to the free will question. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we listening to this woman? Um, if we are listening to this woman, does that mean that we believe that she was the voice of God and she sent us on the way? And so all of this is sort of hanging over this part of the story, I think. Yeah, I mean, whether Abigail represents God's will or just something supernatural, I kind of was scratching my head. Like, are the four people that Abigail sends west, by following her command, are they exercising free will by by choosing to do what she has asked? Or are they not applying free will by doing what she's commanded? Right. I think maybe the answer for each of the four characters might be different. I think Ray is the one who has the most, I guess, faithful, clear idea of who Abigail is to her, and therefore she just will blindly follow the command. I don't think it's less free will and more like, this is what I'm being tasked with, and I won't question it. Yep. And I think that like Glenn is on the far end of that, and he's making practical decisions about why this is necessary and important, and therefore he's choosing to do it. And then Larry and Stu kind of fall in between that. Right. With Larry a little bit less faithful than Stu is. So we see Larry not wanting to leave Stu behind and saying, we can't do this. And Stu sort of saying, no, you know, this is what you told us. This is what we're going to do. Let's do this. Hmm. 
I will say that this episode, more than any of the other, sort of leans into that Christianity with the talk of Psalm 23 and being in the valley of death and I will not fear, which I thought it was really well done, not too heavy handed. And the way that they had the characters talk about it made a lot of sense. I was hoping to see a little bit more of that, you know, with Franny and Mother Abigail and Stu, perhaps. In the book, we get some nice back and forth about how Stu and Franny have their doubts at different points along the way Mm -hmm. when talking with Mother Abigail. Um, The other characters that we've spent a lot of time on, you already talked about, are Harold and Nadine, and they are also dealing with their own issues of free will here. For sure. Harold is the, I think, maybe the more interesting of those two when it comes to free will, because I think a lot of Harold's psyche and his self-identity revolves around the idea that he is asserting his own will on his life and those around him. So it gets interesting because this is largely a fiction. Yeah. I mean, Harold even wrote a book that he like he wrote his own story trying to assert something that wasn't really true. Yeah. And his final words to the Boulder society was that I do this of my own free will. And his final words, period, that he writes in his notebook before killing himself is, I regret what I did, but I did it of my own free will. Yep. So he's saying it out loud. He's like, damn it. Why won't anybody believe me? This is free will. <laughs> but we are privy to the facts here. We know that he's been manipulated really heavily, both directly and indirectly by Flag. So how much of this really is free will? Yep. He also wants to seem to blame a lot of it on the situation he was put in with people making fun of him and parents Mm -hmm. who ignored him. And, you know, that's all fictional as well, right? That's him trying to justify some of that. But I think the part that rubs me a little bit the wrong way is that he's been talking about this for whatever it is, six and a half episodes now. Yeah. And we get it. We get it, writers. You guys like Harold and you want us to feel one way at one point and one way at another point. And it's hard to put that all together. But it also makes him one of the more complex characters in the whole series. Yeah. But they could have made any of the characters as complex if they had just decided to devote that much screen time to that character instead of Harold. Interesting point. Whereas Nadine, by contrast, I think has a a similar story where she's backed into a corner by Flag. Flag has manipulated her since she was a teenager and been this abusive, domineering presence in her life ever since. So by the time she gets to this point where she is on her own, where she has run Harold off the road, and now she's by herself on her way to Vegas, the last leg of her journey, Flag's the only person left for her to turn to. And that is exactly how Flag engineered it. He spent Nadine's whole life bringing her to this point. Which when I was thinking about that today, why wouldn't Flag, with this long con perspective and long life, Why would he only have one Nadine? Right. Wouldn't he be manipulating, I don't know, countless other potential like brides? Yeah. And whichever ones happen to get through the gauntlet of the process. And um, I don't mean to diminish the, the horrors that would make from somebody's life. Right. But if you want to ensure success, you you like double your chances, triple your chances by having fail safe plans. Exactly. There you go. Backups. So, like, Flag has been in this business since the dawn of time. Right. And he's got Nadine. And if Nadine doesn't work out, he's got nothing. Yeah, that is odd. I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. So, one way that Nadine 
asserts her free will in this episode that was a change from the book and that I think we both found interesting yeah. was that Nadine is the cause of Harold's wreck and ultimate demise. Mm-hmm. That moment in the book is implied that Flag has put an oil slick there that Harold conveniently slips on. And here Nadine does it, and she seems to do it as a sort of mercy to Harold. Harold had teased her at the beginning. Teaser is not a strong enough word, but, you know, said, you know, I'm going to get any woman I want because when we get to Flag in Vegas, I'm going to get a woman that's going to make you look like a potato sack because I did what Flag wanted. Mm -hmm. And Nadine knows that's not true. And rather than be disappointed, she gives him a way out. And I thought that that was an interesting way of showing, I don't know if it's goodness in Nadine's heart, but that there's maybe a little bit of humanity left within her before she makes that final decision to go to Flag. Yeah, I'd say this is a great change in the adaptation for the show because it introduces all this complexity to Nadine's character. What were her motivations? Um, It just leaves me wondering a lot about it and thinking about what's going on. And I'm torn, though, because I liked the fact that it was Flag in the book who did this, because by making Flag the master manipulator, Uh the demon with his fingers on all the switches... It makes him more menacing. It makes him scarier. Yep. But that's why I'm torn, because I do like putting this into Nadine's hands. It was her decision, and she's the one who acted on that decision, and she did it for her reasons. Whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, whether it was a mercy or just being spiteful because of what Harold said to her about the potato sack and all that other stuff, at the end of the day, at least she had agency in it. Right. And that's a good thing. Yeah. So we talked a lot here about Harold's relationship and Nadine's relationship and how well thought out they were. And this is an episode of the show and a section of the book, too, where there's not a whole lot of plot stuff happening. Like this is basically moving puzzle pieces from point A to point B, getting everyone where they need to be for the final act. And so what was going to be the driver of this episode? And I think what the writers were hoping to be the driver of this episode were the relationships and the things that we see happen to these characters along the way, because there's a lot that happens here. Yeah. The Boulder Free Zone is recovering from the explosion that killed a number of people, including Nick, who we're told was Mother Abigail's favorite. Mother Abigail has to meet with the committee and send the four folks west. Mother Abigail passes away. Um, There's these long goodbyes between the people in Boulder and the, the walkers. There's goodbyes when Stu has to leave the rest of the walkers behind as they go on their way. And all of these are meant to invoke in us, I think, a certain amount of sorrow, a certain amount of worry, concern, showing how these characters love each other, and how much these connections have built up over these months of the plague and these journeys that these characters have had together. They're supposed to have this emotional impact. Yeah. And most of them fell sort of flat for me in this episode, Jay. And that's because, as we've been saying... The show has just not focused on the character development in a way that it should. And so this is why we harped on that for so long, is because it's supposed to lead to a a cathartic moment. And Mm -hmm. this is that moment. And those just fall flat because we haven't seen these characters interact in such a way that it makes these moments mean something. Yeah. I was thinking about it earlier today about how every moment of screen time of this show, every episode, including this one, where they weren't doing character development, was making me frustrated and angry 
because they have yet to do enough of it. And we are now seven episodes into a nine episode series. There's still not enough character development. Like, did the love scene with Nadine and Flag have to go for as many minutes <laughs> as it did? It wasn't that interesting. No. So take two minutes off of that and give me two more minutes of character development. Yeah. That's all I ask. Like, find those two minutes here, two minutes there. Before you know it, you've got an extra 10 minutes probably in every episode where you could have people have conversations with each other. Show me why I should care about them as individuals and them as interconnected people who know each other and care about each other. Yep. So that when this moment of catharsis, like you talked about, happens, I feel the catharsis. Right. The closest that I got to that, my bar for the stand adaptation is the scene when Glenn says goodbye to Stu mm -hmm. in the washout. They're all chummy and still giving each other shit, just like they always do. Those are two characters who we have spent a fairly significant amount of time with. It, if I added up all the minutes, it still probably wouldn't be enough no. or, or, or that many, but I really have a good sense of who they are to each other, how much they mean to each other. So in that parting moment, I got a little choked up. I really felt something there. Plus, Greg Kinnear continues to be a gem <laughs> in, in the show. Yeah. He was really great. That whole, it was pleasure knowing you. And I wish I could say the same, like that hit for me. All of that was great. Yep. But all the others, all the other moments that happened in this episode that we've spent an entire season basically working towards, they fall off pretty dramatically yeah. for me. Yeah. You know, we get this scene where people are worried because, you know, it, maybe it's better if Mother Abigail doesn't wake up because then she'll have to find out that Nick's dead. And we know how close they were. And it's like, do we though? Because the only time I really saw them together, Mother Abigail was being really angry because she was mad at Nick for not yeah. being her voice. And we really didn't see them have a whole lot of scenes together. There's far too much tell rather than show in this show. Oh yeah, definitely. Nick was important. Nick died. We're sad. Mother Abigail thought Nick was her favorite. Did we? Well, someone said that. Yep. So it must be true. Um, Mother Abigail's death scene did not really hit me. It was very succinct. They're like, hey, everyone come in together. She said, here's what you guys are going to do. Poof, she's dead. And the candle goes out. So we know she's dead. There's no back and forth. In the scene in the book, there's a lot of questioning. Like, why are we doing this? How come, you know, I think Franny's the one who really is against it because when she finds out that Stu is going to have to leave and how dare you do this? And she sort of performs a miracle on, mm -hmm. on Franny to make her do And all that was cut so that we just get the, go do this. I said so, boom, I'm dead. Well, you know, in the book, the relationship between Abigail and the candle was much more fully developed. So oh, yeah, it really the, meant a lot more to so me. So when there. that candle did go out, you really felt it. Yes. I was weeping when that yeah. candle went out in the book. Larry and Joe saying goodbye was brief. Uh, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, who's Joe? Yeah. Larry, Joe, and Nadine, none of those relationships were built up enough that it meant something. So that even now when Larry sees Nadine in New Vegas... I have a feeling we're going to be supposed to think that it means something, but again, it's not going to work. Um, Stu and Franny spend most of their goodbye talking about getting revenge on Harold, Yeah, which is sort of weird because they're not going to get revenge on Harold, so why even bother talking about it? How about having an emotional moment instead? I don't know. Yeah. Harold continues to occupy space in their relationship rent-free, right? Yeah. Like, the guy is gone now. He did a, a terrible thing. It should be enough to just stop focusing on him. But yet, there he is. Um, I will say that, just to 
like put some positive on this conversation. The acting across the board has been good yeah. to great in the show. And yeah, the Greg Kinnear stuff, awesome. I really liked the scene with Fran and Stu when, when they were having that goodbye in the house. The discussion that they had, I thought the acting was great, but what they were talking about and the way that they were responding to each other, it just didn't feel like it was appropriate for the moment. I was disappointed in that. So that's like, for me, that's a writing miss. Yeah. They were acting the hell out of a scene that was like if Franny and Stu were co-worker acquaintances and it was Stu's last day on the job. Like, oh, well, why don't we take you out for one final lunch, Stu? And you can tell us about what your new job is. Yeah. um, Yeah. So we agree that in this show, the best done relationships are the Glenn and Stu relationship. And Mother Abigail and the Candle. I was going to say, the Harold and Weezak one was very strong as well. No, it wasn't. Oh, yeah, that's right. It wasn't. Never mind. <laughs> um, I, I will say, like, I don't want to get too down on this episode because they did do what they needed to do in this episode, and I thought it was well done. It just wasn't spectacularly done, and just knowing what could have been built up to this episode would have made it so much better. Yeah. Sean, did you find any Dark Tower thinnies? Maybe. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe he says question mark. Yeah. So Nadine's in the desert, and you can't say that Flag's not a romantic because he's got these rose petals leading up to what looks to be a portal, a door in the desert, almost like a door that she walks through and ends up someplace else. Like maybe, possibly, like a door that Roland walks through in the drawing of the three. I'll allow it. Because not only was it a portal, but it also had rose petals. They weren't red rose petals, but they were rose petals. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, okay. You know, I, I thought it was kind of funny. Those petals seem to lead up to his face. You know, like the petals start on the desert sand, and then they go onto the carpeting, and then right. in the hotel, and then they go down the hotel hallway, and then into Flag Suite across the floor, and then they go up onto the desk that right. he's sitting behind. And then end at his lower shoulders, neck area, where he has a rose in his pocket. Yeah. If this is sort of a path that Nadine's supposed to follow, it's basically (laughs) Flag's face. Yeah. Right up to Flag's face. This is where I want you, honey. (laughs) Right in my face. (laughs) Like you said, he's a romantic. Uh Uh-huh. Did you have any Dark Tower thinnies, Jay? Um, maybe, question mark? (laughs) Um, I'm calling this a thinny. I'm really grasping at straws here, but Flag is using a glamour to hide Nadine's true condition and appearance from herself. Mm. Just like the glamours that are all over in the Dark Tower story, and Flag himself is apparently using a glamour to hide his true appearance. And he's only extending the glamour to Nadine. Right. She's blissfully looking into her reflection in the glass, and she still looks like the same Nadine we've known. And then as soon as we get a different perspective, it changes. We see her true appearance, and it's, as you said earlier, cadaverous. And (laughs) I thought that was like a thinny. Yeah, I thought that that was a nice little twist there. Yeah. Especially after they showed her so glamorous in the the car ride out of the desert. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this is a different 
way of looking at it, but okay, I'll go with it. But then when they did that twist, I liked it. Yeah. All right. I think we have a couple of yucking it up moments, Jay. Yeah. A couple of good yucking it up moments during the really cool walking montage. The camera kind of pans across a field and we see a rotting corpse. And then the camera just zooms in to the corpse's face and then zooms into the eye socket and then zooms into the remains of the brain matter. And then the brain structure kind of morphs into cracks in the sidewalk. And then we're back into the yeah. montage. But that was some really gross stuff that we were zooming <laughs> through. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, call me obvious, but mine is going to be Harold getting impaled and then spitting up blood. Mm. Like, I thought that was a pretty good special effect, the way he just, like, tumbled through the air, his helmet immediately coming off, and then just, like, poof, the stick right through his chest and uh, spitting up blood. I thought that was well done. Yeah, and I think the best part of that effect was that the stick was fixed. And mm. when he moved, when he was, you know, reaching in his pockets or yelling up to Nadine, his body was wriggling around, but the stick stayed uh, fixed in place. I thought that was an awesome detail because it the stick wouldn't move in real right. life relative to the rest of the branch. It's stuck in that one position, whereas his squishy body with now, now with extra holes in it would move around <laughs> the pointy stick. And as you know from our coverage of the Salem's Lot book, I'm not a fan of impalement. Uh, so you don't like impalement and I don't like dismemberment. What are we yep. doing reading horror stories? I know, right? We got to stay away from these King books. <laughs> My last yucking it up is related to that. When we encounter Harold's body much later after he's died, we spend an inordinate amount of time very close to his vulture-picked corpse. Yeah. And it is horrendous to look at. I mean, probably realistic, but still. It made me think, because I'm like, is it realistic that his body would get that eaten up right away and i'm like yeah because his hair was still there mm -hmm. it was just all the soft parts that were gone and that's what the vultures would get through they were waiting for him to die before yeah. he even ever put the gun in his mouth exactly so yeah they they got right on that all right well this is the time of the episode when we thank our patrons for supporting the show and reminding those of you who do not support the show that you can get access to exclusive patreon content such as bonus podcast episodes by becoming a patron in fact, our episode on the Stephen King short story, Gray Matter, will be going live to our patrons. So if you would like to hear that and learn even more, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. I think it might be time for some fun stuff. Indeed, fun stuff it is. Why don't you kick us off, Sean? This is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but when they get Franny to take the picture of the walkers right before they set off, they give her a Polaroid camera and say, hey, here's a picture. The way that Glenn was standing with his e-cigarette pipe in his mouth, it just struck me as like, this is like the photo that they take in the Untouchables when hmm. the Untouchables have their first raid of a Al Capone bootlegging place. And they're all sitting around in a restaurant and one of the press guys wants to take a picture and it's the four untouchables and one of them's got a pipe in it. I'm like, oh, it just, just the way it hit, the way it was staged and hit, it just reminded me of that. Um, I'm probably the only one who thinks that, but there you go. <laughs> uh, so going back to my previous comment about Harold's vulture-picked corpse, Larry still feels this, I don't know, some sort of uh, attachment to Harold. So he climbs down and he finds the notebook and then 
as sort of like a, I don't know, a gesture of kindness or something. Larry takes off his really nice, really warm looking leather jacket and lays it over Harold's corpse. That was such a waste of a good coat. <laughs> Especially when it's all he has to keep himself warm. I, I keep letting my practical nature get in the way of my <laughs> ability to suspend disbelief for this show. And uh, honestly, a lot of times in the book too. But they're only supposed to carry the clothes on their backs. Right. Larry doesn't have an extra coat, right? He takes that off and then he's, for the rest of the episode, he doesn't have that coat anymore. Right. And they're hiking down from the mountains in winter. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's just me grumbling about a nice person's gesture of kindness. Yeah. And as long as we're talking about this moment, because I get where Larry's coming from, and we probably should have talked about this in our relationship piece, but they never built up the Larry and Harold relationship because in all those flashbacks, we barely saw Larry following Harold. Mm -hmm. I think there was one time when he saw a sign, and yep. that was it. And we didn't go through that whole Detective Underwood thing. But this is the moment when he tells Stu, who's obviously very upset at Harold and Glenn and the rest of them, I'm going down there, not because of the person that Harold was, but because of the person I followed across the country. Yeah. And at the very least, he deserves to be covered up. And that moment just doesn't hit when you didn't see all that stuff happen ahead of time. And so while it is a nice, kind gesture, it just doesn't have the impact that it could have. Yeah. So on that sweet, sweet note. But, but let me just add this. Yeah. This is another example, maybe, of actually showing us Larry's growth. He starts off as, he ain't no nice guy. Right. And now here he is, the nicest guy in the bunch. So maybe there's a little bit of a character arc there. Maybe. Maybe. It's just not earned, in yeah. my opinion. Um, a couple episodes you wanted to point out that Flag maybe was showing Plumber's Crack. Uh -huh. And uh, in this one, we actually get to see his ass just outright. <laughs> no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. During the sex scene with Nadine, we definitely see Flag's ass. I see what you did there. No ifs, ands, or buts. You like that? I didn't like it, but I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I got a little bit of a chuckle out of the baby. Can you dig your man playing in the Inferno Hotel as the three Boulder people walked in? Kind of like, hey, Larry, here's your song. Here's your song. Pal. There was a missed opportunity to, at some point during the show, to play the whole song from beginning to end, just so we could hear it. You know, give it a shot. Put out an iTunes single. Let's hear the whole thing. Yeah. Maybe during the, uh, the montage, the walking yeah. montage. So instead, during the walking montage, my last fun stuff, Jay, is that that's a deep cut Radiohead song. That's a song called I Promise that was recorded during the OK Computer Sessions, so like back in like 96, 97 but I don't think it was released officially until just a couple years ago when they put out like a 20th anniversary edition of that album. But it is a well-known song for Radiohead fans, which I count myself amongst them. I'm like, wait a minute, am I hearing Radiohead during the stand? That's weird. Yeah, and it was during the, the montage that I sort of thought was like the walking montage in Lord of the Rings. If this is supposed to be the American Lord of the Rings that Stephen King was writing, here was our attempt to see our heroes journey across the American West. Yeah, I think the song worked fine, and I liked the montage. Yeah. But I agree. It would have been nice to hear more of Baby Can You Do Your Man. Always. So my last fun stuff is that Harold's last meal is a payday. <laughs> yeah. I guess you could say he cashed in his last payday. Yeah! 
<laughs> All right. Well, no more fun stuff can top that. So how about we go on to our Jamie Sheridan's? Jay, what did you give this episode of The Stand, The Walk? Maybe I'm just in a generous mood. Maybe I still have a tear in the corner of my eye from when Glenn said goodbye to Stu. But I'm going to give this four Jamie Sheridans. I think I've consistently been under the uh, number of Jamie Sheridans that you've had, and I will continue that. This is a three Jamie Sheridan episode for me. At least you didn't cut Jamie Sheridan in half for this rating. Because then I would have had to downgrade it even further. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand. <laughs> episode 8, The Stand. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. That's what we call a callback, folks. <laughs> hey, Dark Tower reference. In a big country, by big country, from their album Big Country, it's in a big country. Fantastic. I hope you recorded all that.